I've described before <clears throat> in individual conversations how lamentation is at the bottom, right? There's like a few steps above that to keep track of the gradients. You know, one step above is just aggravating or irritating or something that just pisses me off. But it's not quite down there. And then like two steps above generally gets into more stuff that's boring or disinteresting. And then it gets gradually better the further up you get there. I usually only keep track of the bottom three because it just kind of keeps up coming up. This, this is one step above lamentation. This is at that what the hell kind of a level. And I, so, it, imagine my surprise when I found out that David Goodman wrote this episode. In fact, it was his first episode on Star Trek and an Enterprise. He was almost, well, he says he was in consideration for being fired over this. Now, hang on, you're probably thinking, who's David Goodman? Well, we'll see him in a few future episodes. Um, but the really important thing right now, because he'll, hang on, hang on. He'll do some production work producer work in the future. Right now, he will do this episode. He will write uh, Judgment, North Star, and The Forgotten. I remember The Forgotten. That's season three. North Star I, is usually on my skip list, I'll be honest, but I do rec recognize it. Judgment, eh, we'll talk about that when we get there. But anybody who's a fan of Futurama or Orville might recognize the name David Goodman. And he went from Futurama to this, to Orville, to track that. He reported that he really struggled with the episode, and he himself didn't like the script. So Braga was brought in to do a, a rewrite of the script, and he struggled with the script. Braga actually considered this one of the worst episodes of Trek ever. Which is funny, because I just mentioned this isn't Lamentation status for me. What's really funny about that statement, though, is that Goodman was, like I said, in consideration for firing. Braga is the one who stepped in and said, no, let's keep him on board. Not sure what I make of that. So naturally, uh, Goodman, who is a long-standing TOS fan, it's, he, he did work on Where No Fan Has Gone Before over on Futurama, uh, he naturally wanted to tie this episode into two of the most beloved episodes of all of Star Trek, Elan of Troyes and The Perfect Mate. You know, sometimes maybe you should just nix the premise and do something else. Just Food for thought. Uh, deliberate references to Perfect Mate are deliberate. This is intended to be the same species and the same culture and blah, 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 blah. Although she is not one of the, the one in a rare empaths. She's just, you know, a person from that planet. But she does have the dots, and they do kind of mention the royal family thing, and they're known in a hundred worlds, which is probably a lie. I mean, a hundred worlds at this point in time? I'm not even sure the Klingons have that many. And they're probably one of the bigger boys on the block at this point. Anywho, let's just run through this. So, stasis transport and being paid for months of a journey. Huh. You know, funnily enough, I feel like I'm repeating myself here. I wish they weren't evil. I mean, it's the classic Trek trope. Everything's fine, everything's fine. Nope, they're secretly evil. And that's exactly what happens here. So, you know, that's neat. <sighs> There's a lot of plenty reasonable reasons why this might line up this way. Especially if this is a political thing. 
she has been arranged to be transported in a deliberately slow transport, and they'll be paid very handsomely both before and after for this uncomfortable and unpleasant journey because they want her out of the loop in a way that pretty much is going to guarantee that she's not a part of politics for X period of time. Right? This then lines up with why what, the explanation that was given, which is a lie, of course, about how her family isn't even present in order to receive her once she, re she gets there. This also would help to explain why they don't necessarily want to cut off the uh, four months and 26 days, roughly, of their journey by just taking Enterprise. Although, I'm not sure how Enterprise thinks they're going to carry that ship, because that ship's about the size of Enterprise. And there's a lot thing about, we could just take you in the hull, which is a load of nonsense, and probably just a straight-up mistake, given the issues that both writers had on this episode. There's a lot of those. I'm not going to cover all of them. I just wanted to mention that one because it was one of the first ones I noticed, and there's a lot of them. Anyways, <clears throat> so, I, I'm exaggerating. There's only like a dozen, but still. <sighs> so, okay. Then there's this nice bit. Can we have the luxury of a bath? Yeah, no, that actually sounds awesome. Holy crap, right? Um, so, they go there and, you know, I, I, I hope I didn't deplete your water supply. Nice little bit there. And there's the whole prearranged thing. There's the mention about the distance and the speed. Naturally, they're villains, of course. And so she wakes up, of course. And so they run, of course. Uh, but there's a problem here. See, the Enterprise can go warp bajillion, and this ship can go warp snail. It's actually a plot point. Twice. In fact, there's this bit where they mention that the other ship's trying to get away at warp 2, and Enterprise effortlessly catches up, because of course they can. They're probably having to try not to surpass them. So then, naturally, they shoot them, disable their engines, the ship falls out of warp, uh, hits some stuff, which is going to force them to cleanse their things, and then takes off again. Okay. So you have to purge your nacelles. And they're, they've lost them because the ship leaves their sensor range. At warp 2. You know, I wouldn't be as irritable about this if not for the fact that the scanners just keep bouncing back and forth in terms of how good they are. This actually makes sense if we keep that low-tech thing in mind. Scanners are actually very relatively unuseful, right? So maybe they could keep up, pack, uh, track the warp trail, track you know, and trail them that way. But the actual scanner, you know, they lose them after they leave a few light years, which, okay, you know, I'm actually kind of with that. Because I like that. It's just, this is an ant trying to outrun a buffalo, and the, the, it, there's just everything wrong with it. It's so difficult to make the enemy ship actually a threat. Credit for trying, but I just, at no point do I buy the fact that, oh no, they're lost, oh. And the Enterprise doesn't actually find them until the end. In fact, they have to go through this whole song and dance to get aid from the other guy in order to speed this up. I get it. It can be explained away. It can. There's only one hoop necessary here. It's just, I don't buy it. It doesn't work for me. I don't know what else to say on that. So, you know, this... Let's talk about the positive thing first. There's this bit where they do this whole thing. Archer says, keep him in the airlock. We'll leave the outer airlock unlocked in case you feel like leaving. Now, he's doing that as part of a plan, which is 
frankly, beyond Archer to come up with. He's never shown anywhere even close to this level of competence. I wouldn't be surprised if this was actually Reed's idea, because he's the one who I could see coming up with this idea. So he's left there, but actually, as weird as this may sound, even though that's a little bit unpleasant and horrifying, it's kind of a good idea, isn't it? You put them in the airlock, and you just leave them there, and they can just stare out the window. Don't leave them in there too long. Not days, or weeks, or months. No, no, just just leave them in there, like, say, an hour. An hour can drag on a long time when all you have to do is stare out uh, the port, knowing that if anything goes wrong, you're turbo-dead, right? And then come in, hi, hi, you want to talk? So listen, the magistrate is coming down, and she has been given arbitration over this, this tribunal. We left this space dock, we had 85 people, now we only have 73. Oh, she's here, she's here, stand up, stand up, bow, bow, okay. And then she starts asking about the execution figures, and he's just like, I, look, I can only give you this if I, if you fall for this incredibly obvious and overt ploy. It got a chuckle out of me. In fact, it felt like the kind of thing I would see in Futurama or Orville, but I have to admit, the whole time I'm just looking at this like, really? <laughs> but that's probably the best part of the episode right there. The, the joke interactions between Archer the guy whose name I didn't even bother writing down, and to Paul. At least she kept her robes, so that was good. You can, you can take her more seriously when she's in her robes. Huh! I wonder if that means something. Anyways, so then we cut to the Elan of Troyes plot. I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. I got tired of writing, of just reciting the episode in my notes, because I just had nothing to talk about. It is so rote, cliched, and disinteresting and again, there's nothing wrong with cliché, but that's why I mentioned cliché as the second of three things. It's rote, because it's just, it's going through the motions. I'm probably using the word wrong. It's clichéd, because it's a thing we've seen a billion times before. Taming of the Shrew, anyone? And then, I know that doesn't apply linearly. And then it's disinteresting. At no point was I looking at this like, yeah, I can't wait to... Part of the problem, and I don't know if this is the actress... But the woman they got to play Kayatama is really, really stiff in her delivery of her lines. To the point where it's actually kind of off. I, like, I don't think that was a deliberate direction. But if it is, I, I got nothing on this. I have no idea what they were going for with her. So Tucker has no real chemistry with her. And she's kind of stiff and not really all that interesting. And the two just kind of snark and aggravated each other uh, pretty much constantly. And then we have a few things of the, the, the daring escape... I, I was about to complain about one little thing, because the escape escape pod, yeah, 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 that's my impression of this episode. The escape pod gets ejected, and it's like, and it falls out, and naturally, my first thought before they even say anything is, oh god, so obviously they're going to live, even though they've just dropped down from warp to sublight speed, which is the kind of thing that should have enough momentum to turn you into jelly on the front of the, the pod. That's one of the reasons why inertial dampeners are such an important and indeed mandatory aspect of faster-than-light travel. Even if you somehow solve the energy requirements, which are a thing, and if you somehow bypass the other stress issues and strain issues on the ship, you have to make sure that the momentum issues involved do not cause you to turn into molecular paste. Right? 
I mean, I, I, this, this is a fairly common thing. This has been a thing since at least TNG that I'm aware of when they first brought this into Star Trek, but in a lot of other science fiction in general. Which I was going to make fun of, and then I looked at it, and I looked at how the episode was framed, and I have to withdraw that complaint. Because when they pull out of it, he mentions that he actually makes a mention of them falling out of the warp bubble. He doesn't say it that way, but that's what they're doing. And the ship does shudder a bit. The ship, the pod... And then I started thinking, a pod, it's not really that out of bounds for a pod to have inertial dampeners. And the fact that he outright mentions it means that was probably the dampeners going online to prevent them from turning into molecular paste. And the fact that he probably knew that walking into it means the... And long and the short of it is, I would actually believe that Mr. TOS fan here actually thought about that when he was designing that section of the episode. So, I'm okay with that. This is one of those one-loop problems. What I'm not okay with is the following however long. See, I looked at... At this point, I, I've, I've, I've almost got no notes left. You know, I've, I've, there's the jerky, there's the awful romantic chemistry, there's Dagobah, there's Slap Slap Kiss. Okay. But at the point at which they escape, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, the episode's got to be almost over, right? No, it was only halfway over at that point. You remember how I mentioned that it's what you use the length for that really matters? I've talked about this a lot lately when it comes to game design. But this really comes up in Star Trek, because in some episodes, even of Enterprise, I'm just, I'm, I'm into it, and I'm with it, and I'm taking notes, and oh, the episode's over. Oh, wow, I felt like I just started. And then sometimes I have the exact same feeling, but then I look up and I'm only halfway through the episode, because the episode is just dragging. Which is the other problem with this episode. It drags a lot. And now you're probably thinking, Lord, this sounds a lot like a lamentation. Hear me out for a second. Because then we have them arguing and ranting and ranting and arguing and she's uppity and royal and he's a common working man and you already see where this is going. And even though the two have no chemistry and no working relationship and don't like each other whatsoever, naturally when she actively attacks him when they're on Dagobah and he actually fights back, the next thing that happens is they kiss and have sex. The sex is implied. The kisses are shown on camera. <sighs> I know I just mentioned about me being Puritan and all that, and I know that they mandated sexy be added to the show. But my problem here, as weird as this may sound, is this feels very checkboxy. That kiss I just mentioned happens almost at the very end of the episode. Yes, I know that I just jumped from the middle point to, like, five minutes from the end. But that's because that middle point is filled with the tr tribunal thing I already mentioned. But also, them just bickering for, like, 20 minutes. See, the thing is, the episode drags and drags and drags, and then everything resolves very quickly. I'm not even joking. They have the kiss, they have the sex, the, 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 the beacon goes off, then the guy shows up, then they defeat him, then the crew shows up, then they say goodbye, the end. And it's just rapid fire right at the end there. The pacing is completely off. Both in, in, in every sense. It is too slow and it is too fast. Then I found an, an interview, a, a quote, I should have written it down, uh, by Mr. Goodman where he mentions how challenging it was working on this show because he's used to working on shorter television, writing an episode that's 23 or 22 minutes long instead of one that's 43 minutes long. And it was just like, oh, that makes a lot of sense all of a sudden. 
Because it's true. Like, if, if you're going to suddenly shift from writing an episode to a movie, well, that causes issues too, and that's how Insurrection got to be. So this whole thing actually kind of makes sense. And you're probably at this point wondering, Lore, what is the redeeming factor? What, what saves this from lamentation status? A lot of the dialogue is actually pretty good in this episode. <laughs> the plot is ridiculous. The events are nonsensical. The, the set piecing and the moving of the storyboarding is actively bad. The pacing is awful in both directions. But a lot of the actual specific dialogue is legitimately good. It's just really weirdly placed. It's, it's all, it goes all the way back to the initial line I mentioned. You could really use the luxury of a bath. And just little stuff like that. Little tiny tidbits of dialogue that sounds like it's written for, sounds like it's spoken by an actual human being rather than being Hollywood. Like, I don't know what else to call that. I'm sure you've encountered that where someone says something and it sounds like something that someone wrote, right? Just the way it is designed and the way it's presented sounds like something someone wrote. Like it's almost a speech, really. And then there's dialogue that sounds natural and nuanced and sounds like it's spoken by a person. Now, this isn't the best dialogue I've ever seen, and I don't want to praise it too much. I actually have seen really, really well-written dialogue in my years, and it's amazing. But this is still some of the better dialogue I've seen in this show in general. And that's a consistent element throughout the episode that brings it up one step from Lamentation up to the step just above that, which I'll probably come up with a name for someday because this just keeps coming up. If you want to lament this episode, that's fine. I absolutely wouldn't blame you. But funny little side note. I've mentioned a few times now the worst episodes lists. I've checked those lists for Voyager, for TNG, and for DS9. And I've been doing it for Enterprise because it's what I usually do. I've decided to stop doing that for two reasons. Uh, and, and by the way, if you want me to talk about the episode, we're done. So if you just if you don't care, you can chop off here because I'm done talking about the episode. I have nothing else to share about it. But <clears throat> one of the things, first of all, obviously, you know, walking in without my influence, my inner, inner, in, impression of an episode being slanted is something that's a good thing to happen. I would like to think that after nine years of doing this, I'm practiced enough to to review. Uh, to ruminate on an episode without being biased based on other people's opinions. But it is still nice to keep that separation there. But there's a much bigger and more important reason why I'm doing it. And that reason is, we all disagree about Star Trek. I talked about that before, remember? In this very series. I talked about how I was tabulating the TNG and the DS9 uh, most rewatches and most skips. And how there's so many episodes that are on both lists... And the range is gargantuan. There are dozens of episodes across that because we all disagree on what we like to rewatch and what we enjoy and what we get out of Star Trek. And that's awesome. I really do think that's a great thing. This episode really codified that idea for me because I was like, okay, so, you know, Goodman hates it, Braga hates it, um, none of the pr production staff really speak positively of it. Sure, let's go ahead and look up what the reviews are. You know, the, the, the top and the bottom lists. This wasn't in any of the bottom Enterprise lists except for one, where it was at, like, the 20th slot. And I looked at that like, huh. And I also noticed in one of those lists I was looking at that Shuttlepod 1 was listed as one of the worst episodes of Enterprise in, like, the number 8 slot or something like that. 
if you don't understand why I point that out, so far Shuttlepod 1 is my favorite episode of Enterprise. So far. So again, differing opinions, which is kind of cool. Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'm going to move on, because this was a very forgettable blah episode. And I'll see you next time.